0: Welcome back to Athens' Favorite History Podcast, Is This Too Niche? I'm your host, Zoe. And I'm Jada. And today we're going to be following on the aspect of feminist history, and I want to take a look at sex work in history. Oh yeah. So before I get into the introduction, which I just want to jump right into, I'm going to do a bit of a disclaimer here. This episode needs like a blanket trigger warning for mentions of violence towards women, rape, sex... Prostitution, abortion, miscarriage. I think that's it, etc., no. etc. Um, but I'm really excited to share what I've learned because it's super interesting, and I just wanted to give up, give you a heads up that some of this episode is going to be a little bit. Heavy. I'm excited to hear. Without any further ado, I'm just going to dive in. Start at the very beginning. I'm going to be taking a look at the ancient cultures, starting with the Near East, and this encompasses cultures like Mesopotamia and Phoenicia. In the ancient world, the label "prostitute" refers to a woman or a man who offered sexual services and sometimes outside of the law, but in a lot of these ancient cultures, they actually practice something called sacred prostitution, which is kind of what it sounds like. It has to do with rituals usually containing paid intercourse performed for religious purposes. So in the ancient Near East, we actually had a thing called houses of heaven, which were temples associated with specific deities that were believed to house temple prostitution. Although modern scholarship has debated this a bit, it's more likely that the houses weren't made specifically for prostitution, just so happens that prostitution took place within them. So these houses weren't really brothels they were more so temples but our historical accounts of ancient prostitution are skewed because most rich descriptions of them come from herodotus who was a greek historian who wrote about them in the 5th century bce which is way long after the new eastern cultures flourished and we're going to be talking about some of his writings a little bit later i have a really funny joke about them i'm just like (laughs) waiting for (laughs) um anyways so in sumerian records we find the earliest mention of prostitution as an occupation documented in 2400 bce so prostitution definitely existed we're just unsure of the extent to which it took place there are descriptions of a temple brothel called a kakum in uruk which would have been run by priests and dedicated to the goddess ishtar which was the mesopotamian equivalent of aphrodite and within these brothels we had tiered divisions where like the prostitutes would fall under which we're going to see later too throughout history and in different places. So like the lowest tier would just kind of find clients on the streets and live on the temple grounds. And then the middle tier were a little bit more cushy. They would cater to visitors within the temple grounds. And then the top tier had exclusive access to the inner temple. Interesting. Where they would perform sexual rituals. The hierarchy of prostitution. Yeah. And I found it interesting because if I remember this from AP art history, but like ancient Mesopotamian temples, like the inner Sanctum. It was like only, not pulling, but I only like really important people could get in there. Oh like yeah. Usually yeah. priests or something. So I just thought it was interesting that also like in some cases it was prostitutes that yeah. were given this that is super interesting so they also supposedly had a sacred marriage rite called the hieros gamos some of the accounts of this are a little unclear but it was basically a ceremony in which the king would hook up with a priestess and it was representative of the union between two gods but because of the lack of records we're unsure if this like actually happened or if it was more of a like figurative Mm. kind of thing interesting though no who like what's it called who who like confirmed it (laughs) How would that have worked? I know, like the witness. (laughs) The witness? It's a little weird. In the Canaan region and in Phoenicia, male prostitution dedicated to the goddess Ashtar took place. Herodotus is quoted with having written, quote, The foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger at least once in her life. (laughs) And I said, we found him, guys. The original (laughs) slut-shamer. Because why is he shaming the women? It's the men who are working. Yeah. us shame so men. No, if you're, you're going to do it, sludge so both parties. No, because it literally
1: hasn't changed.
0: No, really. Nothing's changed. <laughs> no, really. In Hammurabi's code, we find legal protections for females involved in sexual ri- rituals. His judicial code protects the rights and the good name of priestesses who perform sexual rituals by protecting women from slander. His laws were relatively progressive in this manner, as women were also able to inherit and own property. I say we bring back Hammurabi's code yeah. 2023. <laughs> i want to poke some eyes out and be protected from slander
1: absolutely like,
0: two in one absolutely if we jump over to ancient egypt we have much less information on prostitution but we do know that women in egypt had way more rights than in any of the other ancient mediterranean cultures women slay in egypt yes <laughs> and as a matter of fact the institution of marriage didn't even exist their equivalent of tying the knot was just moving in together and you know <laughs> calling it a day all That's, our roommates. Yeah. The Greeks and Romans were getting down and dirty. Sexual promiscuity was abound. As a matter of fact, the term prostituere, which I'm probably mispronouncing, and I think it's Latin means to expose publicly so demeter and aphrodite were goddesses that were associated with human sexuality in greece and of course their roman counterparts would have done the same and my guess is that demeter ties into this because like associations with agriculture and fertility Mm -hmm. and no definitely Yeah. yeah in athens prostitution was illegal and again we see different rankings of types of prostitutes first we have pornai oh (laughs) <laughs> yeah who were basically just pro- brothel slaves um and they were recognized as infames meaning they had no rights or social standing which is really cool guys and most of these poor found clients on the street or were rented out rooms above taverns to work out of and on the other side of the scale we have high class courtesans called heteria who would entertain dinner parties when was this ancient greece okay yeah that's
1: crazy yeah it's like it, ha- it really hasn't changed that no, much. No, it
0: hasn't. And there's so many different cultures that adapt different tier systems in terms of, like, courtesanship. yeah really interesting in rome prostitutes had to be registered with something called the aediles, which were governmental institutions that regulated the operation of brothels and bathhouses, which were two places where we were getting down and dirty down and dirty um a common theme in this episode yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much so i'm renaming the title yeah, yeah. down and dirty the Adelie would distribute licentia stupri which was a license for debauchery oh where can i get one of those <laughs> um And Roman brothels were called lupinar, which comes from the Latin term she-wolf, which I just thought was kind of cool. Interesting, especially if you think about like the Etruscan like she-wolf statue and mm-hmm. the legend of how Rome came about. These brothels would have been run by pimps or madams. Oh yeah, as we see throughout history. And one specific brothel in Pompeii remains highly intact, and there are like paintings that are very sexual in nature on the walls lots of graffiti i just think it's interesting kind of funny mm-hmm. during a specific event in rome called the Ludi games prostitutes would hang out under arches and perform as people left the games and the latin word for arch is actually fornix and there we have the word fornication yeah i just thought that was very interesting that is interesting as in some of the earlier cultures they also had a hierarchy divided by high and low class prostitutes high class courtesans were called meritrices please bear in mind i don't know if i'm any of this right like at all but the highest class were registered they had to pay an imperial tax but they were still denied rights because of their status as like infamium. infamia the highest of high class which were above the last one that i just talked about were called the Delicate, and they catered to the wealthiest patrons. On the other side, we have Prostibulae, which were the lower class. They were unregistered, and the only way to distinguish themselves as prostitutes, like to advertise, they would wear like completely minimal, like see-through clothing, and some of them even wore togas, which were only allowed to be worn by men, so I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And the lowest class were called the Ambulate, and they were known to roam the streets with penis-shaped cookies. <laughs> to attract clientele <laughs> if you see me on court street <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jade is starting a new business in yes i am Venmo only unlike most of the cultures we'll look at sex and romans viewed very casually so they had no issue having brothels just smack dab in the middle of the city um meanwhile other cultures usually delegated brothels to the margins of the city rome also had a phenomenon called graveyard prostitutes which um, were like the lowest of the low and they (laughs) literally yeah oh my god and they would operate within graveyards or within underground tombs so during wow yeah which is cool like that's kind of mary shelley Mm. do you know this no mary shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave oh it sounds like that one scene from game of thrones i haven't watched game of thrones but she wrote frankenstein
1: really oh i didn't know that that's that's crazy that is crazy what a crazy like she's really cool episode on mary shelley (laughs)
0: anyways the graveyard prostitutes would work at during the day as paid mourners and then at night i think you know where that's going they would um advertise their prices by writing on the back of headstones with wow chalk. that's, that's oh chalk okay yeah and they would do their thing oh bring back never mind don't, no don't that, <laughs> i was <laughs> That would probably not go so very well. Yeah, I don't know about um, well that one. And now I want to look at ancient Judaism and Christianity just to give a little basis as to, like, the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So prostitution in ancient ancient Israel definitely happened, but it was um looked down upon. It's going to get a, a little bit gross here for a minute, but I have to say this because it's really interesting. Okay. So the ancient people didn't know that semen is regenerative. <laughs> So the one of the big reasons that they looked down upon a man having sex with a prostitute and not his wife was because they felt that he was wasting the, Oh my god. You know. Um, okay, as I was saying, prostitutes were considered zona or kadesha, which were Hebrew terms meaning set apart or consecrated, and according to scripture, quote, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a Kadesha, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a Kadesh. So, well, oh can, well. Yeah. Oh well. Still happens. So then we have the Christians. Oh. Love them. (laughs) One of the biggest tenets of Christianity in regards to sex is that it's only meant for means of procreation. Any form of sex that did not lead to procreation was sinful. And that's why a lot of people- Great to hell. Yeah. The only real mention of prostitution in terms of the Christian canon is Mary Magdalene. Although in scripture, she was never like specifically labeled as a prostitute. It's just kind of how she's been interpreted as Mm -hmm. like a reformed prostitute. And she slays. She does. Every time I see her in Renaissance, Northern Mm -hmm. Renaissance, I'm like... Girl boss, I don't know anything about her. But Me was, neither. Like, I recognize you. After the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Byzantine Empire, Constantine closed all of his brothels and any temples dedicated to Venus. Brothels still kind of existed anyway mm-hmm. in Constantinople, so like Istanbul, Constantinople. Yeah, I, I knew, I knew that was <laughs> that was happening. I love Just Dance. Following Constantine, Justinian outlawed trade and child prostitution, which is a major slay on his part, but not quite a slay. We have Emperor Emperor Theodosius. The the first who burned a bunch of prostitutes alive.
1: It's nobody's business but the Turks.
0: Um, Jada's lost mic privileges. (laughs) Around this time in antiquity, a huge development that occurred was that St. Augustine um, argued that prostitution was a necessary evil. So, meaning that prostitution weren't to exist, men would mistreat and soil their wives. Mm. So he was essentially saying that it's better for men to have sex with prostitutes as they please rather than with their wives. So, this kind of shapes the entire medieval attitude towards prostitution, as you'll see. So now let's take a look at the Middle Ages. So during the Middle Ages, sex outside of marriage was tolerated. Like I said, it was a necessary evil because they believed it prevented greater evils such as rape, sodomy, or masturbation. Okay.
1: <laughs> this when, is
0: just gonna make me so mad at everyone. And, when the Roman Empire was dissolved, prostitutes became slaves by default. However, religious opposition to slavery caused the reinstitution of prostitution and thus brothels reopened. Of course, the legality was a little bit tricky. There were some places where like prostitution was illegal, legal outside town walls but not inside red light districts sprung up in certain oh my gosh i know in certain i mean they wouldn't have known jada's corner it wouldn't have been known as red light districts but There were places where civic brothels could exist legally. And in some places like London, protection for sex workers were enforced, although minimal. Um, For instance, they couldn't be harassed by city authorities. In other places, protections did not exist. Some places made it so that sex workers could never leave the profession. And worse yet, um, in many brothels, so long as a customer paid, they could legally rape prostitutes. Wow. This was also a time where um, marital rape didn't exist in the law. Like, if the wife didn't want to. Oh my god. It was not considered rape. Oh my god. So I want to look at a specific case in medieval sex work, and that is in the town of Nordlingen, Germany. I actually think I slayed that pronunciation. Mm -hmm. I was worried about it. I think I slayed that. It sounds good. In 471, a criminal investigation was run on a prostitute in a brothel named Els von Aestet. She worked in a brothel run by Lanehart Friermut and Barbara Tarschenfeiden. Um, And by worked in, I mean she was forced into the brothel. She became pregnant and took a brew that would induce an abortion. But because abortion was heavily looked down upon, Big surprise. Mm. She was tried of course some logistical complications occurred such as it was suggested that she herself didn't like make and drink the brew someone like made her it's a bit unclear they let her off so long as she did not work the brothel anymore and she had to run away wow so they really cared about their their employees yeah um on that note i want to get a little sidetracked because i want to discuss medieval contraceptions and abortion because it's super interesting Mm -hmm. so since ancient times the ancient greek state of cyrene grew a plant called syphilum it's now extinct but it was like their main export and it was used as an oral contraceptive so they would take it and they'd be like no getting pregnant tonight interesting yeah medieval plan b baby (laughs) yeah other places used physical barriers which i don't really want to get into there was around 300. 50 BCE, the practice of concocting a lead ointment and inserting it oh my god. to decrease sperm mobility happened. Oh my god. It's just like lead? <laughs> oh my god. And also contraceptive sponges existed. Sponges. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. So it's was in for a, an adventure. Anyways, that was horrible. Now let's look at abortion. So, of course, the Catholic Church was not too keen on abortion or contraceptives. The Church Council of Anchrium in 314 stated that a woman who attempted or committed abortion would be exiled from the church for 10 years. Please. Per- I know. Personally, personally, I would not care me neither but alas gynecology prevailed in the second century we have serenus of Ephesus. he documented recipes for induced abortions which were transmitted through the ages justinian the first official byzantine emperor's wife theodora was known to have utilized these recipes quite a bit because um she was reportedly pregnant a lot oh but didn't have a whole lot of kids so, the math... Mm, math ain't math, math it. <laughs> The math has to add up somewhere. Surgeries also existed. It's interesting, though. <laughs> if a woman experienced a breech birth, which was where the head was not coming out first, and it was, back in the day, fatal to both the woman and the child, the doctors would cut... Ooh. Would cut the child limb from limb. And, what? And they would pull it out, and it was called an embryotomy. C-sections also existed, but they were usually used to rescue a child from a dead mother until paul the bishop came into play um in an account this paul fellow exists in a publication from the 630s called the lives of the fathers of merida and he reportedly performed a life-saving c-section on a wealthy woman experienced stillbirth by cutting her open and then cutting apart the dead infant in order to save her kind of in in a similar way just oh my god chopped it up ruthless yeah but kind of impressive for the time at least the actual opening of the like mother was pretty intense because like oh we're, i'm we're, sure we're cut you know yeah. there's a really interesting picture on the slides of like a depiction of a medieval abortion or not abortion a oh medieval c-section but it's just kind of like a circle cut in her stomach <laughs> really just pulling a baby out unfortunately these kinds of methods were not usually available to anyone who wasn't wealthy especially not sex workers and attempts to induce abortions were incredibly dangerous led. <clears throat> Later on, they would use arsenic and mercury. That sounds like a good idea. Uh-huh. So, I, w- I want to quote something from one of the sources I read. Quote: The fact that stories of late-term abortions even find their way into saints' lives without judgment belies a more important fact that abortions undertaken for the preservation of a woman's life were rarely, if ever, under attack by medieval Christian authors. Not even the moralizing religious texts touch upon such cases. Let's bring back this attitude, guys. hmm Come on. Mm -hmm. So back to brothels. Life in a brothel was rough. If a woman were seen acting promiscuously in public, she would be condemned by being compared to a prostitute and sometimes even forced to go to a brothel. And the only way for a woman to leave was to save up a dowry and get married following in the footsteps of Mary Magdalene. And, of course, this was near impossible because there was a cycle of debt that kind of kept mm-hmm. women in these situations. But let's take a look at Austria. An incredibly famous brothel operated out of Belonzo Austria. It was established in 1472 for a place for, quote, gutted women to live. Oh, um, Brothels usually held 12 to 13 prostitutes and would have been located in the outskirts of the cities. Um, and in some cities, only women were actually allowed to run brothels. And at first, this is like, oh, well, I guess that's kind of good, but also, like, not really. Women and men both could mistreat brothel workers you know yeah take the case of elsa stelkin an austrian woman in morano in 1471 she had been seen in public engaging with another man and by that i mean she was eating and drinking with him and this was apparently reason enough to suspect her of being a prostitute so she was detained walked in a public procession to be shamefully oh my god
1: game of thrones
0: shame shame
1: everyone who gets that um me.
0: she was sent away to a brothel in austria married or jewish men were not permitted to enter brothels but illegal prostitution occurred nonetheless if a jewish man were to have sex with a prostitute who was a christian woman he faced the death penalty So they were not messing around no damn of course with reformation and the introduction of lutheranism brothels became once again looked down upon and some even shut down um another reason was that europe became a little bit more conservative towards prostitution towards the 16th century because a certain someone whose name rhymes with philumbus (laughs) spread stds (laughs) specifically syphilis (laughs) to um europe and prostitutes became the scapegoats so that's it for medieval Europe and I want to take a look around the world because to be to be honest medieval Europe is the most boring of all of these sections So I just want to get her out of the way and I want to talk about the Islamic empires. So pre-islam harem culture exists in persia and a harem is essentially part of the house set aside specifically for women they were known as forbidden places because no men were allowed in oh my dream i know in empires such as assyria persia and egypt royal courts contained harems specifically for rulers wives and concubines which could be problematic at times because women within the harems would vie for their sons right to the throne and sometimes the entire dynasties could come falling down because of this as islam is introduced to these reason- regions the harem tradition continues and i'd like to clarify that harem culture doesn't directly relate to prostitution but since forms of sex work did take place within them i'm kind of just putting them in this episode um for instance like concubines and sometimes within these harems women didn't have a whole lot of choice or autonomy over their situation. Their foremost roles were to cater to the sexual needs of the ruler. Within Islamic tradition, polygamy exists. Depending on how the Quran is interpreted, some places approved of polygamy and some didn't. Just for all intents and purposes, it was an aspect of some of these cultures and specifically a type of polygamy called polygyny, which was where men could have multiple wives carried out. Interesting. So my main focus of this segment is going to be the Ottoman Empire. Which a brief explanation: the Ottoman Empire started when the Turks sacked. Don't sing <laughs> it. Don't sing it. I knew. It's I kn- nobody's business with the Turks. <laughs> the Ottoman Turks sacked Constantinople, which is now Constantinople. Constantin- Istanbul. <laughs> Constantinople. Don't. Long time
1: gone. Constantinople. Wait, what's Istanbul? Constantinople. Are you done?
0: Which brought down the Byzantine Empire and replaced them with the Ottoman Empire, which is an Islamic empire, which took up most of the Balkans, and it lasted from the 1300s to 1923 with World War One, which is a really long time. That was just some background. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at the royal harems of the Ottoman Empire, which are really interesting so the empire would have been ruled by a sultan and the sultan could own as many women as he pleased and was permitted to be polyamorous the women within his harem fell into different ranks some of them were concubines some of them were wives in terms of the hierarchy there were several classes of concubines on top we have odalisks who were the high class courtesans and they had to possess talent as well as beauty Then we have the gedik, who were likened to eye candy. And on the bottom we have concubines, who were essentially treated as one-night stands with the sultan. So the sultan's mother was considered to be the leader of the harem, and it was a very powerful rule. It has been said that the empire was ruled from the harem. Within harems, only women and children were permitted, and they were like these huge apartments with anything that anyone could need. They had markets, bazaars, playgrounds, kitchens laundries, schools and bathhouses. And of course, while they had all this all this stuff that they could have wanted, they weren't really permitted to leave ever and they were meant only to be seen by the Sultan. So you win some, you lose some. Yeah. Um and since the Sultan had so many relations it could get pretty cutthroat because he would have children, specifically sons, and the sons would be raised in the harems. And I don't think it was quite as European in the sense where they had, like, a primogeniture kind of thing. It was just kind of like, who's going to be yeah. there? And, like, death happened. <laughs> <laughs> killing really you know all this stuff so some sultans were known to be kind to their harem woman and others not so much Sultan ibrahim the mad um who ruled in the 1640s was known to have drowned 280 women oh my god maybe see a therapist before (laughs) before carrying out something like that maybe yeah but i want to talk specifically about a woman named harem sultan who was also known as roxalana she was the wife of solomon the magnificent um but how she got to that point was really interesting so she lived in the kingdom of Poland in what is now modern day Ukraine. And she was born between 1502 and 1506. We don't really know anything about her early years, but as a teenager, she was kidnapped by Crimean Tatars in a slave raid and was sold into the Ottoman slave market, specifically the one in Constantinople. And she was highly valuable because of her ethnicity and her age. And while this is definitely icky, it was very lucky for her because she could have ended up in much worse places. So she was purchased by a man named Pargala Ibrahim Pasha, who was a close friend of the sultan, and he gifted Roxelana to the sultan. And from there, she entered the harem as a slave slash Laundress, but she was really lucky because she was Christian, and I will explain that a bit later. So many tales have been told as to how she caught the sultan's attention. One says that she, uh, he walked past her while she was singing a Russian folk song, and she he was just head over heels. But another more more Freudian version of the story goes that the sultan's mother chose her to do the deed with the sultan. She's just like, okay, yeah, weird. Anyways. The reason that she was lucky because she was Christian is because the sultan was expected to father children with Christian women to avoid dynastic struggles between powerful Islamic families. So that's why Roxelana was able to move up the ranks. She quickly gained the favor of the sultan, which uh, threatened a woman named Mahi Devron. Hmm. who was his consort and his favorite. But at one point, Mahi Divran took out her anger by scratching Roxalana's face. Unfortunately, oh. this only made the sultan feel sympathy for her, and Mahi Devran was just out of the race. <laughs> so in 1533, the sultan freed Roxalana and married her, and soon after, the sultan's mother died, which left a power vacuum over the harem, and Roxalana stepped in, and she bore him five sons and one daughter, which is kind of weird because she was only to, supposed to have one son and focus on his upbringing, but she was not about to play by the rules of the game she was her own princess diana absolutely <laughs> call back yeah um anyways so while the sultan was permitted by islamic law to have as many women as he wanted he remained monogamous and loyal to roxalina who was also known as harem and she eventually moved out of the harem and joined the sultan at topkaki palace where she was given her own apartment and when he went away on military campaigns she took over at home Um, And she became very powerful and independent as a female leader. She, at one point, supposedly had Pargali Ibrahim Pasha killed, who was the man who, like, gave her to the sultan in the first place. So she was like, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, enough of that. And she was active both within the harem and within the empire as a whole she was known to be very protective of um concubines especially those who came from the same region that she did and um on the other hand she was responsible for infrastructure charity projects like soup kitchens and being a patron of art and architecture and so yeah she just rose up the ranks and it was really cool yeah and that was a really long tangent but whatever no i like that this is gonna be my favorite part of the episode (laughs) so i want to talk about prostitution in china and then in japan so we're gonna start with china first in ancient china brothels were registered as taxpaying biz- businesses and both male and female prostitutes were free to work as they please. but i want to look specifically as the at the ming dynasty era of china because this is where things get interesting so during the late ming dynasty which was between 1550 and 1644 um, a culture of prostitution and courtesanship flourished however depending on the place Sometimes it had to do more with the woman's financial status, like, sometimes it was the only way for women to survive. Just take that with a grain of salt. Anyways, in Yangshu, specifically, prostitution was a big part of the culture. The Yangshu Soma, or the House of Thin Horses, was an example of the culture of courtesanship that went on in China. And within this establishment, customers would come in, receive tea... And then a matchmaker would bring out several women. And one by one, the women would model themselves for the customer by, like, showing their faces, their hands, their eyes, and their feet. And then the customer would place a golden hairpin on the one who he was most taken by. Um, And Yangshu just kind of serves as a representation of how commercial sex was viewed in China because women equaled commodities there, as in pretty much everywhere else. Yeah. But, um, you know, I would argue that that's the case with all forms of prostitution, including Mm -hmm. the modern day, but... Anyways, in the 1500s and 1600s, Chinese women, including courtesans, were able to become educated, which is pretty progressive. However, prostitutes and courtesans fell under the category of entertainers, which fell under the category of jianmen, which was basically an outcast, and during this period of China, you could either be an outcast or a virtuous person, so, you know, not great. I am going to talk more about, like, what courtesanship really is, but that's kind of more reserved for Japan. Of course, Chinese courtesans had ranks within themselves, the highest of which being the Mingji, which was a class that was expected to become engaged in the fine arts to appeal to high-class clientele, and they would wear opulent fabric and accessories to distinguish themselves from everyday prostitutes, and they lived in entertainment quarters while... Uh, regular prostitutes were called women of the street, or YG, meaning common whores. Official prostitutes were called Gunaji, and they were at the bottom of the bottom, and they were descendants um, of the Mongols, or of condemned Chinese officials, so they were marked by their surnames, which were always Dun or Tu. So that's the historical part of China. Well, it's still historical, but I want to jump towards a little bit of a side tangent, which is super interesting, but also a little bit heavy, but I want to talk about it anyway. So. If we jump forward in time, we find ourselves in the 19th and 20th century. And during this time, Chinese men were traveling to America with the prospect of gold. And some of these uh, immigrants formed secret societies called tongs, which were involved in sex trafficking. and we're gonna dive into this because it should be considered like a huge part of american history but it's not like it definitely should be yeah i have never ever heard of this and i was like researching this like in front room like jaw to the floor really I was like, oh my god i'm excited to hear so it's really horrible and america has a history of pretending that we've never done anything wrong so that's probably why we've never heard of it but still um as i was saying members of tongs would kidnap chinese girls who were purchased from poor chinese families and sold into bondage this was because poverty was running Amok in China at this time because of imperialism The opium wars and the Taiping Rev rebellion so um daughters would be cast off or sold because they were seen as less valuable than sons and they would be brought sometimes most of the time illegally to america and i'm narrowing in specifically on san francisco because this was a really prevalent place that this happened but just bear in mind that this happened like all over the american west Mm -hmm. so when these girls reached america they were kept in barracoons or huts and from there they were either sent to their tong brothel or sold at an auction just just think about that just let that sink in and because most of these girls were illiterate they were forced to sign contracts that would keep them in prostitution for many years without knowing it um and to be honest i think if they were literate they wouldn't have much choice in the matter anyways and some were sent to high class chinese brothels in places like chinatown in san francisco and others were sent to cribs which were common brothels frequented by any and all men but regardless the conditions were unfathomably horrible venereal diseases ran rampant and it was common for these girls to die before they reached reached the age of 20 when a prostitute couldn't earn her keep she would be sent away to a quote hospital emphasis on quote Um, this hospital was really just an empty room in a back alley. Oh. And the girl would be locked in this room with nothing but rice, water, and a lamp. Oh my god. And once her supplies ran out, the town member would wait for the inevitable to occur and come back to find her dead from hunger or suicide. Oh my god.
1: Mm -hmm. That's horrible.
0: Yeah, so I don't have, like, any words on that. Like, it's Mm -hmm. floored. Um, and this wasn't just an isolated thing. Like, this happened all over America, and, um, legal officials did absolutely nothing about it.
1: Oh my god. That's horrible.
0: And I'm not even surprised really just cuz of the rampant like xenophobia yeah. that runs through America but still disgusting. And by 1860 85% of Chinese women in San Francisco were prostitutes. Wow. So, all was not without hope, however. A woman named Donaldina Cameron, known as the Angry Angel of Chinatown, came actually from New Zealand to America, and she volunteered at Maggie Colbertson Mission Home, which was a Presbyterian shelter for rescued Chinese prostitutes. Leave it to women to do all the work. She organized raids to rescue prostitutes from brothels, and she would actually go undercover. Cool! And usually, like, she kind of used her white privilege to an advantage. Yeah. Because if, you know, a person disguised as a white man came in, to a chinese-run establishment the authorities were going to always side with the white person which is obviously a systemic issue but Mm -hmm. like she used that to her advantage to save the women so slay yeah again no legal action was taken but still can we like have an education reform please yeah i know people have been pushing this forever but like this is important no last episode too yeah put me in jada (laughs) put me and jada on the job we will get yeah we will get prostitution and pigeons on the curriculum guys trust us so i want to jump back over to japan and i'm gonna nerd out a little bit on this segment this is i've been looking forward to this segment the whole time this is so exciting to me it's really really interesting so medieval japan was big on zen buddhism which embraced casual sex However, oh my to,
1: gosh i didn't know that yeah
0: i i've always loved like researching Zen yeah. buddhism during the edo period confucianism made its way to japan and dampened their view on sexuality a bit and it wasn't just because of confucianism though i'm going to kind of explain the edo period as a whole and it'll kind of make a bit more sense before i get into the nitty-gritty of this segment mm-hmm. but the edo period lasted from 1603 to 1868 and the name refers to how the tokugawa shogunate moved to the capital front of japan i believe it was originally in kyoto i could be making that up, though. I think I'm right. But he moved it to Edo, which is currently known as Tokyo, but for all intents and purposes, I'm calling it Edo. During this period, the shogunate role kind of replaced the feudalism of the previous era, although daimyo which were land- landlords would rule over specific regions but again were heavily re- regulated by the shogun so during this period a lot of social and cultural reform took place the shogunate pushed to reorganize the stability of japan that had been torn down in the previous warring states period and they sought to urbanize areas especially edo of course social change brings more social change and a counterculture known as the yukioi culture sprang up in the major cities of osaka kyoto and of course edo
1: i actually know about all this i know it, I, I just like i love hearing about I it I know
0: I have like this is all just it's so like, interesting I didn't even have to do research for this because I took yeah. Japanese art history so I'm like nerding out but no, it's my favorite um so so we're going to be specifically looking at Pacific District of Edo and basically this counterculture included the burgeoning middle-class in urban areas who pushed against social norms in favor of a more indulgent lifestyle so the idea of ukiyo-e rests upon the idea of the floating world or fleeting moments in time and this culture was fostered in the arts especially in kabuki theater and in brothel culture and there was a big emphasis on sexuality and pleasure within the counterculture so hopefully that kind of sets the stage a bit but um, yukioi itself didn't come about until like around the 1800s but the entire Edo period was dominated by cultural change and urban organization so it all just kind of Comes together. So now that I've set the stage, let's look into this. So, despite the Edo period Confucian ideals that looked down upon prostitution, it was one of those things that was never really going to go away and it actually flourished during this time. So, in the early 1600s, a brothel owner went to the shogunate and proposed that he be given a tract of land in Edo where he could regulate prostitution, have a monopoly. (laughs) And the government signed off on this because they knew that they could tax this business. And so, in 1617, the shogunate passed a law that made it so that brothels could exist only within this specific tract of land which became known as yoshiwara wow and it was basically a red light district of course equals of this existed in other major cities but yoshiwara was especially famous this is so embarrassing that i have to include it god if anyone's a fan of the anime demon slayer there's an entire season that takes place in yoshiwara and it's so interesting and they did a really good job okay historically don't look at me like that i'm glad for them don't look at me like that anyways i made my parents watch that show it's not embarrassing to like demon slayer yeah it's not okay <laughs> your face is saying otherwise it's not it's not so anyways pretty much all of our instant information about yoshiwara comes from male accounts so we don't have really accurate representation of what life was really like not from the perspective of the the prostitutes themselves, but I'm gonna do my best. So scroll paintings, woodblock prints, and guidebooks would advertise the Yoshiwara district to customers. And you can actually see a 58 foot long scroll titled A Visit to Yoshiwara in our pictures. Wow. So, women in Yoshiwara didn't have a whole lot of choice in being there. Most started at a very young age. Poor families would sell their 7- to 8-year-old girls into brothels to support their family. And, <laughs> I, and at these young ages, the girls were entered into 10-year contracts where they'd have to pay back the brothel owner, but usually end up sitting in a cycle of debt. So, the young girls would start off doing chores around the brothels and assist their sister courtesans and be educated. Um, and, of course, they weren't prostitutes at this point. That would be bad. Unbelievably bad. But it's still kind of horrible to think about them being raised at a very young age to be prostitutes yeah and so uh, yeah as i said they weren't prostitutes yet but they would be trained in the skills of the trade for instance they were taught how to write love letters how to fake tears how to speak manipulatively in a way that could keep them on their feet and once they reached 11 to 12 years old they would begin elite courtesan training where they would learn music singing poetry tea ceremony backgammon conversation literature etc dang yeah they were they were meant to be you know like they they were meant to reflect the life of an aristocratic woman because it would make them desirable to aristocratic men so while on the one hand it's like wow that's really good that they're getting education getting to be engaged in all these things they're they're only getting it so that they're more appealing to men yeah i was like this is upsetting once fully trained young courtesans would have their virginity sold off (gasps) to the highest bidder oh my god ew yeah how are people this gross i don't even know so the young courtesans role were to entertain patrons while they waited for the elite courtesans. And the older these courtesans got, the more stuck in the cycle they became. Because as they rose up in the ranks, they needed to pay for more expensive things like kimonos and jewelry. So they were stuck in that cycle of debt. And they mm. actually had to reach a daily quota of income or they'd be fined by the brothel owner. So the oh only way, God. the only way out was to hope that you could pay your own debts but more likely a wealthy man would be taken with courtesan and pay off her debts for her but sometimes yeah. this was not something that she wanted as we might as we will see and you would go from being a courtesan to being forced into being a wife so yeah while the yuki oi culture stressed indulgence especially sexually this only really applied to men because the clients wanted to believe that their courtesans were in love with them be so for real like <laughs> they did not care why um, has it
1: like not changed though like no i feel like that's yeah
0: courtesans would know how to play the game though like they weren't you know oh i'm sure they they did. They were getting their bag they Um, knew what they were doing there was a genre of hanging scrolls like and a style of art called pretty girl hanging scroll which depicted courtesans (laughs) pining for their clients just like male fantasy much like clients also needed to be wary of the femme fatale be so serious because these were the type of courtesans that would get money and leave their clients (sighs) in the dust as they should first of all but second of all like don't fool yourself no You're not special. You're just a man. Like, be so for real. (gasps) Be humble. Yeah. In 1660, a guidebook ca- came out titled The Mirror of the Yoshiwara, which included fake interviews of courtesans who told their secrets and how they dealt with unpleasant men. But as we know, the actual perspectives of the Yoshiwara women have not been depicted through history. We just know that their lives were pretty rough. There is a graveyard at Joganji where 21,056 prostitutes who had no familial connections rest to this day, and most of these women died in their 20s. Wow. Yeah. Um, the original Yoshiwara district was destroyed in the Great Edo Fire of 16. 16- 1657 and rebuilt bigger and better than ever it was walled off from the rest of the city and separated by a moat and clients would have to travel by boat or sometimes palanquin which is really funny like what to make everyone known that you're going to the brothels (laughs) like i don't i don't know (laughs) samurai weren't really supposed to indulge in entertainment districts but they did anyway by wearing hats and disguising their identities so as i was saying what was brothel like in yoshiwara it depended on your status so there were different types of prostitutes and courtesans within the district the lowest level of prostitutes could be found by side the moat and then we have the subone which were the second lowest class and they were separated from the streets by latticed partitions so they could be seen like playing music and you know doing their thing Mm -hmm. um if you go up a level we have the sancha which were the powdered tea girls and they weren't permitted to refuse their clients so they didn't have a whole lot of autonomy the next level were the koshi and they were higher up on the ranking and could flirt with the clients through the lattice walls and they were associated with the aristocratic and the coquette so lana del rig coquette aesthetic. <laughs> Elite courtesans were known as oirons, and they would live in ageas, which were specific brothel houses that resembled high-class homes of Edo. They couldn't be approached by clients. They had to go through middleman. So there was actually like a courtship process in becoming involved with an oiron. Um, during the first meeting, she would completely ignore the patron. During the second meeting, she sat nearer to him but refused any food. And during the third, she would engage in conversation and eat with him. And during this third meeting, she would partake in a sake drinking ceremony in which she had to drink three sips from three cups oh. before having sex with the client. <laughs> I don't really know the significance of this, but it was, you know. I know. I wonder how they had a system down. Yeah. In exchange, clients were expected to gift the courtesan with lavish kimonos and accessories. The Oiron's. Celebrity status was a part of her charm. She would perform a daily procession through the district known as the Daochu. And the Daochu would begin with dancers and masked musicians who donned fox masks as fox were associated with the god Inari, who is the patron of Yoshiwara. Next, we have the Kanabo Hiki, which were watchmen who carried instruments that alerted everyone to the procession. Um, women dressed as men, who were known as the Tekomai came next. And then we have the Mochi who would carry paper lanterns with the name of the Oiran painted on them. And then we have the kimuro which were young girls who served the oran they would don red kimonos and wear their hair in short bobs with bangs to identify themselves and then finally we have the oran herself who was supposed to wear these like super tall wooden shoes like like eight inches tall like just interesting huge wedges with kind of like a flip-flop thing on top. I, s- I saw it on the pictures yeah. yeah and then she'd have to actually walk in a specific pattern where like the first foot would make a figure eight pattern and then the other foot would do the same thing so it How was do you even like do that? very very slow procession like you know it was all pomp and Circumstances. Interesting. Beauty standards were really important to the Japanese courtesans. They were meant to appear youthful and thin. They valued round faces with small mouths. They were to paint thick black eyebrows on their face. Their faces would be painted white to set them apart from the working class who would have been exposed to the sun all day. Um, A huge part of their alert was the fact that they wore layer upon layer so like the slightest show of skin was a huge like part of the eroticism which oh, is like okay okay so, like outfits were kind of made with layers so that they could both be like eroticized and obscured at the same time so like they had obi belts who would that would like kind of be like a corset they would like squeeze i feel them. like
1: someone thought way too much into I know. this <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's, there's a lot going on here you get the gist there's a there's a lot there's a lot going into it so there were also a class called the the geisha which was a type of courtesan that began as male entertainers whose job was to amuse waiting patrons but eventually they hired women for the job they were not um as the myth surrounding them suggests they were not actual prostitutes they weren't even allowed to participate in prostitution because they would take away from like the attention on the oiron although young geishas Called Maiko would have their virginity sold off before becoming geishas, and this wasn't considered prostitution for some reason, it's just I don't know. Another, just you know, specific Orans gained celebrity status, which would make them more socially relevant. Um, and some have been written about. So, first we have an Oran named Oyodo from like the 18th, 19th century, not sure exactly when, but a painter named Sakai Hoitsu was very wealthy and interacted with a lot of the uh, courtesans in Yoshiwara. And I won't put he even bought one of their freedoms and someone documented his conversation with courtesans in the kanden sudoku and within this book readers could read about his interactions with oyoru um and this book actually ruined her reputation so she later wrote a poem about it and i want to read a few lines so the first line is that these days the pond is muddled by early summer rains the pond's koi have not been savored in the early summer rains it's hard wearing a kimono drenched by the early summer rains so Oyoto used the pond as a metaphor for herself because yeah. the character for pond resembles her name and then we can obviously tell that the early summer rains are relating to Hoitsu who's you know stories about her ruined her reputation and she was not happy about that there was a courtesan named Teokoyo the second and she was one of the most famed courtesans because she had a kabuki play based off of her but most of her life was fictionalized within a lot of the plays the story went some somewhere along the lines that a daimyo named Date Sunimune fell for her and set about to buy her weight in gold and of course she didn't want this to happen because she actually had a lover who she was planning on like running away and marrying so in an attempt to prevent him from being able to buy her she tried to weigh herself down with iron, but nonetheless, since he was a daimyo, he was able to afford it. So, one version of the story accounts that while on the boat ride to Date's home, she attempted to drown herself, but when Date found out, he just did the job for her and threw her back oh. into the river. Another version suggests that, uh, she would not have sex with Date at all, ever, and each day that she refused him, he broke one of her fingers. She would not let up, and after she finally didn't break, he had her hung. More likely, like, in actuality, she died either of pneumonia or tuberculosis, but her story, like, she was so famed and so, like, coveted that they had all these plays and stories written about her. So, Yoshiwara, as a whole, is a good reflection of the ukiyo-e culture that flourished through the Edo period. Not only was it a red-light district, but it also harbored a lot of culture. For instance, kabuki theater, music, fashion, festivals, calligraphy, sumo, pottery, and flower arrangement were all things to flourish in Yoshiwara. In 1872, an ordinance granted freedom to all geisha and prostitutes um, but, of course, illegal forms of prostitution still continued, but for the most part, it was a progressive ordinance because it abolished public prostitution, human, tra- human trafficking, and regulated service contracts, and canceled all prostitution debts. Nonetheless, prostitution prevailed, and Yoshiwara continued as a hotspot, but eventually began its fall from grace. As Japan became more and more subject to Western influence, they adopted Western policies and values. For instance, the 1957 Anti Prostitution Act, which stopped Yoshiwara dead in its tracks. And if you were to visit Yoshiwara today, it would just appear as a normal part of Tokyo. No, nothing special, you know, no sign of that history. Now that I've covered a good chunk of prostitution around the world, I'm going to shift gears a bit and cover prostitution in a more contemporary section of history. So, we left off Europe around the Renaissance, and between the 16th and 18th centuries, the combined forces of std and religious reformation made it so that prostitution was not legal although it still continued so that's where we left off if we look at the 19th century in america prostitution wasn't considered a crime um at first feminists and religious movements became louder about their opposition to prostitution and certain cities did begin to enforce regulations for instance in st louis weekly std checks were mandated oh in the uk the contagious disease act mandated pelvic examinations for prostitutes and feminists opposed this because it was an invasion of bodily autonomy which is true super weird and between europe and asia sex trafficking based on race took place asian women were trafficked to europe and vice versa just super weird that's gross don't That's weird. (laughs) That's all I have to say on that. So, in the American West, as mining became prevalent, male pimps took over brothels, and brothels in the West went more unregulated because the Western part of America had been less developed, so it was less subject to the government. Um, And in Australia, a similar thing happened where brothels would spring up around mining camps, and in the early 19th century, British authorities in Australia felt the need to reinforce social stratification, so they imposed a regulation that made it so that only Asian, Middle Eastern, and Aboriginal women could become prostitutes because they they couldn't... are a white woman doing unethical things you know and then in 1900 after they gained independence they pushed for a white australia it wasn't yours in the first place uh, what? it wasn't white in the first place like what are you talking about <laughs> yeah uh they tried to prevent any non-white woman from coming to australia because they didn't want them to come over and become prostitutes but like what my brother in christ this you you created the system did, yeah this is your fault you know like you can't be annoyed about it oh my Um. god (sighs) so I talked a lot I have a little bit more but I'm gonna pass it over because this kind of lines up chronologically to Jada Corner
1: Welcome in. I'm stealing your intro. <laughs> Mind the pigeons. Cool. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, yeah. So I'm gonna take you to like n- around the 1900s. We're coming back to the United States, and we're going to head to New Orleans. I was struggling just a tad with this episode because I don't. I'm not very familiar with the history of prostitution. It's been super interesting so far. But um, I t- recently took a jazz history class. I didn't take it. I dropped it. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) so that's all the credit i can give to it is that it gave me an idea for this episode and if you're like what what in the world does jazz history have anything to do with prostitution i will tell you all right let me paint a picture for you future editing zoe Give me some jazz music. The year is 1897. Prostitution has just been legalized in this district only. Everyone is getting down and dirty. <laughs> You're walking down the street and you see a line of women lined up at the depot. Some of them are only wearing heels and there are m- <laughs> and there are men hooting and hollering running toward the district as they get off the train. You can hear the ragtime melodies playing in the air coming from the grand mansions down Basin Street. My little intro there is actually a paraphrased description of what it was like in Storyville, New Orleans, from the Storyville prostitute herself. Emiline Angola specifically from her diary.
0: Wow. You really set the scene.
1: Thank you. Could you see it in your mind? Yeah,
0: I'm like there right now actually. Good. Are you enjoying it? (laughs) (laughs) Are you running down the street? Yeah, dude, I'm running off the train with him. Yeah.
1: Angola has a super interesting firsthand account as to what Storyville was like during this time and I'll put a link to her diary entries on the sources page if you're interested. But today I'm going to focus on a woman named Lulu White. So obviously because of Storyville being a red light district as we were talking about, prostitution was booming. There were more than 1500 prostitutes in about 40 brothels all over the city. How on earth would you choose? The most infamous brothel madame in the Storyville district was Lulu White herself. Her business flourished from 1898 to 1917. So Lulu White's history is still somewhat of a mystery. She was a very mysterious woman, but what we know is that she was born around 1868. We actually don't know her actual age because she kind of kept that hidden from us. Iconic. Mm -hmm. She lived on a farm near Selma, Alabama, and her real name is Lulu Hendley. She was a proud black woman, Happy Black History Month, by the way. Whoop whoop. In the early 1880s, she ended up in New Orleans, where she started work as a sex worker and attracted a lot of wealthy, prominent clients. These clients helped her to expand her business, and by the late 1880s, she had become a madame with her own house. Her business was called Mahogany Hall. She welcomed some of the most influential men in the South and prided herself only in hiring women of color to entertain the white patrons. She commissioned expensive works of art like Tiffany stained glass windows and soon to be famous jazz musicians that would perform in her parlors. Most notoriously, Lulu White was known for her love of expensive jewelry. Material girl. Yes. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Lulu White actually had to bribe authorities who wanted to segregate the prostitution business. She avoided legal ramifications for years, avoiding convictions of on-counts of liquor sales, running a disorderly house, quote, quote, and even dodging allegations of attempted murder.
0: Attempted murder? Yeah. I'm
1: not going to get in that because I couldn't find anything on it. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what? 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 She was a very, very smart woman, but her luck ran out in 1917 when the prostitution laws changed and mahogany parlor shut down. Storyville was deserted, and Lulu White owed $150,000 in real estate, which equates to about $3 million today. Lulu vanishes from history after 1931. Hmm. Overall, Lulu White was an absolutely iconic woman who dominated Storyville, New Orleans. Definitely a name to remember as the successful entrepreneur in Black business owner she was during that time
0: that was super interesting thank you yeah back to you zoe (laughs) so we're getting closer to the current day the present day and i just have a few more things to wrap this episode up with so um here's another part of the american history that ties into sex work that we aren't taught about in schools of course of course um so it in, in World War II, in the colonial Philippines, the U.S. Army developed a program that managed prostitutes, and it was called the American Plan, which made it so that the military could arrest any woman within five miles of a military camp and check her for STDs. Oh. If the woman had STDs, she was sent to a hospital or a farm until she was cured. Okay. <laughs> um, like, hello? What? <laughs> Um, this also did happen, like, in the U.S., but it mainly targeted people of color, colonialism, and violating women. (laughs) Oh, yeah! Or also during World War II, um, Japanese soldiers were known to engage in forced prostitution, which during this time entailed about 200,000 Korean and Chinese women who were designated as comfort women or women who were forced into military brothels. I actually just read a book called Beasts of a Little Land. I'll be honest, it kind of flopped. I don't know why I'm, like, promoting it, but I think it inspired me to do this because it was about, um korean courtesans while japan was imperializing korea and then also like during world war ii and then the the korean war and it was just super interesting anyways read it if you want (laughs) yes if you want relatively recently a 19th century brothel in boston had been found and excavated so you might be familiar with the big dig which is a controversial project in boston that is rerouting the city's infrastructure and displacing marginalized people which is why it's controversial but as a part of this big dig the remains of a building on an street was unearthed and determined to have been part of a brothel owned by a miss lake and a dr paddleford and the site was excavated and revealed a lot of information about the daily lives of the prostitutes of the 19th century so the building that they specifically found was part of the outhouse and part of the outhouse was called the privy which is where everyday objects would be disposed of because they didn't really have like a disposal system back then so these objects were found and we could gather them and figure out like what um life looked like for these prostitutes back then so we have figured out that this bostonian brothel house was built to resemble a middle-class home it was able to fly under the radar because it had been known to have been frequented by a lot of police officers okay and some of the objects uncovered include regular everyday objects such as combs and jewelry others include more interesting things such as vaginal syringes oh which were used to prevent diseases and terminate pregnancies so these syringes would have been used inject mercury, arsenic and Oh my god Um don't do that. No Oh my God. But um some of these methods can be attributed to the dr paddleford himself who was the husband of the brothel owner and was known as a sketchy doctor who prescribed unique methods for curing stds and terminating pregnancies the article that i uh, read about this in was really interesting and you can find it in our references okay so that's pretty much all i have there's definitely some stuff that i cut out and i just thought it was you know thought it was really interesting and if you think about like sex work today it's a super divisive thing personally like i'm pro sex workers but anti-sex work because yeah. it's dangerous it's founded on a culture of the patriarchy it like absolutely you know, it's just super weird too to think about like a night with the boys just like going to a oh strip my god club. like why do you do that that's so weird oh my god yeah um how are just, how are they comfortable doing I that? i know and to just Ugh. go and like purposefully objectify women is like so it's so weird seek therapy <laughs> Um, anyways, so yeah, I don't know how to end that, but I guess that was the episode. No, I think that was super interesting. Yeah, I, um, we're not sure what next week's episode is gonna no, be. No, but so. I have
1: a pigeon update. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, give us that.
1: <laughs> so we got a response in our QA. Okay. Um, the response, if you don't remember the question, it was if you were a pigeon, where would you resp- reside? Uh huh. And the response
0: was in Jada's future house. And you wrote that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> PSA, and I'm guilty of this because I forgot to answer. PSA, if you. You are listening on Spotify. You are legally mandated to answer our Q and You have because to. Because they're fun and silly, and we want to know. They're fun, we yeah. We that. actually want to know. We'll read yeah. them out loud. You'll get yeah. credit we'll if you have literally... good
1: Spotify like playlists and stuff. Oh my god, this we'll... is your time.
0: Yeah. Um, we'll shout you out if you give us funny, good answers. We will. This is. I don't know what exactly I'm gonna come up with as a question. Yeah, maybe like, maybe... what would your stripper name be? Stripper name. I know that's like so unserious after all the stuff that we talked about. No. But, like it's fun and silly, and I. Want you to respond. What was my clown name
1: in that one episode? That would be my I don't know. Mine was like Frank. Do you have No, more? I have. Oh, more. you have more? Okay, sorry, yeah. keep going. Shirami was a girl. oh okay. I'm so sorry, Shirami. And this is my favorite. F- I okay, I just read a book called A Pocket Guide to Pigeon Watching by Rosemary Mosco. I highly suggest it was very good. I loved it. In the okay, this was my favorite fact. I'm gonna share with you. Maybe I'll have a pigeon fact every day. In, okay. In the northeastern part of Sweden, some folks greet each other with foos your dues, which translates into English to how are your pigeons but it's actually like a way of just saying how are you and then they're supposed to answer with a pecking which means they're pecking.
0: So um if when you come out of your yeah. residence hall to go to class with me, and if I say that to you,
1: I'm gonna say a peckin. Mhm. Who's your news?
0: Perfect. A peckin. I love that.
1: Yeah. That's all for my pigeon facts today. All right.
0: Well, thank you for listening.
1: Yes. Thank you for listening. Tune we'll see in you next week. Next week for a mystery
0: episode that we don't know. And <laughs> answer the Spotify Q and A. Answer it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's it. Peace out.